Hello everyone. Today we will talk about the Meiji Restoration of Japan. This political coup in 1868 stands as the defining moment that saw Japan bid farewell to a centuries-old political system and set forth a transformative journey towards Westernization and modernization. But uh, how did the groundbreaking Meiji Restoration happen exactly? Who were the protagonists? What was restored? And What's the Emperor Meiji's role in all of that? We will answer all these and more questions today. We will divide this video into two parts. First, we will examine the geopolitical landscape of Japan in the mid-19th century. This will help us to appreciate the saga that followed. Then, we will recount in detail several pivotal events between 1853 and 1868 that led to the Meiji Restoration. We will see that What's often simplified as reformist overthrew the old regime was in reality a series of fascinating events that unfolded due to a fateful blend of luck, peculiar personalities, astonishing betrayals, and historical currents. For instance, did you know that the Satsuma domain, a key force in bringing down the old regime, was uh, an ally of that old regime for many years and even helped it to suppress other rebels? It's a story field with unexpected turns and twists. Let's get started. Japan's imperial family boasts the distinction of being the oldest dynasty in the world. The same family has been ruling Japan for at least 1,500 years, until the present day. Well, I used the word ruling, but in reality, from around 12th century, the emperor served a largely ceremonial role. The true power rested in the hands of the shogunate, which was a military government led by a warlord called the shogun, which itself was a hereditary position. So, there were effectively two power centers in Japan. The court in Kyoto, where the ceremonial emperor lived, and another court somewhere where the shogun wielded real power. In 1603, after almost two centuries of civil wars among warlords of various domains, one of the warlords, Tokugawa Ieyasu, reunified Japan and established the new Tokugawa shogunate, with Edo, modern-day Tokyo, as its center. The new shogunate made two significant policy decisions. Firstly, rather than establishing a centralized government with appointed regional governors, the Tokugawa shogunate preserved the traditional feudal system. Domain lords had to pledge loyalty to the shogunate, but they retained hereditary positions and autonomy within their domains. Secondly, the shogunate implemented a policy of sakoku, or isolationism. Japanese nationals were forbidden to travel abroad, and no foreigners were allowed to room in Japan. Among all Western nations, only the Dutch were allowed to have limited trade in only one port in Japan. This isolationism policy was intended to ensure social stability by eliminating outside influence. These two policies established in the early 1600s formed the bedrock of the shogunate's rule and had been effective in keeping Japan stable for more than 200 years. However, as we'll soon discover, they also sowed the seeds of the shogunate's eventual fall. You are now listening to the podcast version of this episode. 
if you like to enjoy the full video version with pictures, graphs, and subtitles, please head to YouTube. You will find the link in the description below. Now, let's uh, fast forward to early 1800s. By then, Tokugawa shogunate had been governing Japan for more than 200 years and uh, was doing quite well. Japan at that time boasted an impressive literacy rate of 40%. That's a milestone that China wouldn't achieve until the 1980s. The city of Edo stood as one of the world's most vibrant cities, housing roughly 1 million residents, which was double the population of Paris at that time. Remarkably, Edo also held the highest rate of restaurants per capita globally, which uh, for a food lover like myself was an unmistakable testament to its prosperity. However, Japan's days of peacefulness were ending. In the early 1800s, propelled by the Industrial Revolution and a desire for expanding their commercial and colonial interests, increasing number of foreign ships ventured into Asian waters. Japan had learned of the consequence suffered by another major Asian nation that resisted interaction with the West, namely China's humiliating defeat in the First Opium War by the British. Yet, similar to their Chinese neighbors, the prevailing sentiment among most Japanese was an unwavering belief in their cultural uniqueness and superiority. They considered Westerners as barbarians and feared that any interaction with them would tend the purity of the land of the gods. And that's why, despite of their awareness of Western technological superiority and the potential benefits from trade and cultural exchange, the idea of having foreigners in Japan was outrageous. The Japanese were resolute in the isolationist stance. However, without invitation, the Westerners arrived anyways. In the early 1850s, heightened American fishing activities in waters near Japan and increased the trade between the United States and China compelled the U.S. government to seek formal diplomatic relations with Japan. Commodore Matthew Perry was charged with this mission. Perry was an experienced naval officer and uh, diligently prepared before sailing for Japan. He immersed himself in the intricacies of Japan's isolationism policies and the dynamics of its internal politics. He recognized that negotiating with lords of various domains or with the emperor would be futile. So he headed directly to the shogunate in Edo. In July 1853, Perry's fleet arrived in Edo Bay. The fleet comprised four vessels, notably the massive black hole steam-powered flagship Mississippi. When Japanese coastal guards informed him that Edo was off-limit to foreigners and advised him to head to the port of Nagasaki, which was where the Dutch were received, Perry steadily refused. The sight of Perry's black behemoth warships armed with formidable cannons made it abundantly clear to the Japanese that their coastal defenses were woefully insufficient. After some hesitation, the shogunate relented and permitted Perry to land. During a meeting between Perry and high-ranking shogunate officials, Perry presented a letter from American President Millard Fillmore. In this letter, the United States asked for a declaration of friendship, permission to trade, opening of several ports, and the establishment of consulates. From a Western perspective, these demands were quite normal. However, 
Japan's deeply ingrained isolationist tradition of the past 200 years had imbued the nation with a strong aversion to interaction with foreigners. In response to Perry's demands, the shogunate conveyed that uh, given the complexity of the issue, it was unable to provide an immediate answer. Perry acknowledged this challenge and informed them that he would return the following year. The shogunate found itself in a precarious predicament. On one hand, it wanted to uphold the isolationism policy, but on the other hand, it couldn't ignore the sheer power represented by Perry's giant ships and cannons. Faced with this difficult decision, the shogunate took an unprecedented step. It sought opinions from the imperial court in Kyoto and lords of major domains of Japan. The last time such a consultation was conducted was several centuries ago. Essentially, this act conveyed to Japan that the Togawa shogunate was weak and needed help. In fact, we can say that from that moment on, although the shogunate would continue to govern Japan for some more years, its prestige slowly began to erode. Meanwhile, the imperial court and influential lords of domains started to wield more and more power. Perry did come back in less than one year, actually. This time, because the shogunate had already reached an internal consensus, negotiations went a lot more smoothly. The Treaty of Kanagawa was signed in March 1854. In it, Japan accepted almost all America's original demands. The only issue placed on pending was trade. This historical event marked the opening of Japan. It signified that, albeit in limited numbers, Western foreigners would henceforth be permitted to enter Japan. Let me share with you an interesting historical tidbit. The reuse of Paris flag almost a century later. On September 2nd, 1945, the last day of World War II, the Japanese chief of staff signed his country's unconditional surrender aboard General Douglas MacArthur's USS Missouri. During that ceremony, two American flags were present. One was the official American flag at that time, and the other was the 31-star ensign flag originally used by Commodore Perry. The treaty with Perry provided Japan with some temporary respite, but it was evident that Americans and other foreigners would come back to Japan for further demands. As expected, four years later, in 1858, the Americans returned, this time under the leadership of a diplomat called Townsend Harris. His argument was uh, straightforward. Look at the humiliation that your neighbor China is suffering at the hands of Western powers. If you grant us Americans more rights now, we will offer protection when England and France inevitably arrive. The shogunate saw the wisdom in agreeing to Harry's proposal. But uh, to add a layer of legitimacy, it saw the consent of the Emperor Kome in Kyoto. This step was intended to be a mere formality. However, a big surprise happened. Emperor Kome refused to immediately endorse the treaty. He harbored a dogmatic aversion to foreigners. For him, any interaction with foreigners was an insult to his divine ancestors and may bring fire and fury to Japan. He was probably more xenophobic than most of, of his already xenophobic subjects. While awaiting for the emperor's response, the shogunate received the news of China's defeat in the Second Opium War and the humiliating terms it was forced to accept. 
under mounting pressures, the shogunate, led by its top minister E. Nowski, disregarded the emperor's will and proceeded to sign the treaty in July 1858. This agreement, colloquially known as the Harris Treaty, expanded the depths and breadth of uh, America's rights in Japan. One specific clause was the granting of extraterritorial rights to Americans, which allowed them to be tried under American laws for crimes committed on Japanese soil. This was widely viewed as a profound humiliation for Japan. Upon learning that the shogunate signed the Harris Treaty without his consent, the foreigner hating Emperor Kome was understandably furious. A severe crisis of trust erupted between the shogunate and the emperor just when the shogunate needed the emperor's support the most. To compound the shogunate's problems, its most powerful minister, Yi Naosuke, was assassinated in 1860 by anti-foreigner samurais for his role in the Harris Treaty. Given that he was the de facto ruler of the shogunate at the time, as the shogun was only 14 years old, his death further weakened the already fragile shogunate. Meanwhile, Western powers continued to arrive in Japan, seeking more and more rights. Amid this turmoil, two factions emerged among politicians and samurais who were trying to save Japan. These factions would play a central role in shaping the course of Japan's future, so let's spend a couple of minutes to examine them. The first faction, known as Sono Joi, was actually a combination of two distinct movements. Sono meant respecting the emperor and uh, sought to give the emperor a more important role in politics. Needless to say, this would mean diminishing the power of the shogun. And Joi meant repelling foreigners. While these two movements should have been separate, they merged due to Emperor Kome's strong anti-foreigner stance. Who were the original Sono Joi members that aimed to strengthen the emperor, weaken the shogunate, and repel foreigners? In addition to those samurais who harbored genuine hatred towards foreigners, there were also court noblemen and uh, domain lords who saw opportunity to reconfigure Japanese politics in their favor. The most notable domain here was the mighty Choshu domain, located in present-day Yamaguchi Prefecture. The second faction is known as Kobugatai. Ko means the imperial family, Bu means the shogunate, and Gatai means combination. Therefore, this faction aimed to forge a closer alliance between the shogunate and the imperial family in order to strengthen the shogunate and address the challenges facing Japan. This faction obviously included the shogunate, but uh, intriguingly, Emperor Kome was also its member. He was a conservative and wanted to work within the framework of the shogunate to solve Japan's predicaments. This was one of the biggest ironies of this period in Japanese history. While the Sono Joy faction vocally championed respect the emperor, the emperor himself was aligned with the opposing Kobugatai faction. Another powerful member of the Kobugatai faction was the Satsuma domain, which encompassed the area around modern-day coastal city of Kagoshima. Satsuma recognized the shogunate's weakness, but rather than seeking to demolish it like the Choshu domain in the Sono Joy faction, Satsuma wanted to reform the shogunate system in a way that would save Japan and enhance Satsuma's influence. This uh, uneasy alliance between Satsuma and the shogunate 
would ultimately prove detrimental to the shogunate's survival. Let's come back to our narrative. After the assassination of shogunate's top minister Inosuke in 1860, the shogunate found itself in an extremely vulnerable position. It felt a desperate need to repair its standing relationship with Emperor Kome. In an extraordinary display of deference, the shogunate decided to send its leader, the teenager shogun Togawa Iemochi, to visit the emperor in Kyoto. This act may appear unremarkable when compared to 19th century global norms, where monarchs like Queen Victoria routinely met with their prime ministers. However, in the context of Japan, a shogun hadn't visited the emperor for over two centuries, so such a visit represented a previously unthinkable display of reverence. The shogun Togawa Iemochi arrived in Kyoto in 1863. During his audience with the emperor on March 7th, the emperor lectured him on the paramount importance of safeguarding Japan from Western barbarians. In return for the emperor's renewed support, the shogunate agreed to execute the policy of repelling foreigners. The execution date was set on May 10th of that year. When the fateful day of May 10th arrived, knowing the power of Western guns and cannons, most domains chose not to take any concrete action. However, Choshu Domain, the leader of the Sonojoi faction, took the order to repel foreigners to heart. The Lord of Choshu ordered his forces to open fire without warning on all foreign ships in his domain. In an astonishingly short period of time, Choshu earned the empty of England, France, Netherlands, and the United States. It was quite a feat. Caught off guard, these nations withdrew but vowed to return for revenge. While Choshu's actual damage to foreigners was limited, its actions achieved a significant public relations victory, as it became the sole domain Japan willing to stand up against foreign barbarians. It gained admiration and support from all over Japan. Fueled by their momentum boost in prestige, Choshu put forward a shocking plan, a military campaign led directly by the emperor to expel all foreigners. Emperor Kome was taken aback by this proposal. His deep-seated aversion to foreigners stemmed from the belief that their presence in Japan would insult the spirits of his imperial ancestors. However, he was also aware that hastily engaging in a full-scale war with foreigners would likely lead to Japan's defeat and potential colonization by Western barbarians. And that outcome would be a far greater insult to his ancestors. The conservative Emperor Kome wanted to work with the shogunate to save Japan. He had no desire to work with what he perceived as extremists from Choshu domain. Under the emperor's directive, a coup to weaken the Choshu-led Sonojoi forces took place. It's known as the Incident of August 18th in Japanese, though it actually occurred on September 30th, 1863 in Western Canada. On that day, a meeting of powerful warlords and high-ranking court officials was convened within the imperial court. With the emperor's blessing, Choshu samurais were ordered to leave Kyoto and return to their domain immediately. Simultaneously, court nobles friendly to Sonojoi faction were exiled. The Choshu forces had no choice but to obey the emperor's orders, but they were planning for a comeback. 
The initial attempt involved covert actions. After regrouping in their Choshu headquarters, dozens of elite Sonojoy samurais clandestinely infiltrated into Kyoto. Their plot was to set the city on fire and uh, in ensuing chaos, abduct the emperor and bring him to Choshu. Fortunately for the emperor Kome, this plan was leaked. A specialized police force loyal to the shogunate, known as the Shinsengumi, was mobilized. They located the hideout of these uh, terrorist samurais and uh, managed to capture or kill most of them. By the way, this Shinsengumi would later be romanticized and uh, idealized, becoming the protagonist in animes and mangas such as uh, Tokenambu and uh, Gintama. Recognizing that uh, covert operations were futile, the Choshu domain opted for a more direct approach. It dispatched its formal army to Kyoto to save the emperor from foreigner-friendly forces. This was no longer a clandestine operation anymore. In August 1864, Choshu forces arrived near Kyoto. Despite of being just one of nearly 200 domains in Japan, Choshu possessed one of Japan's largest and best trained armies at the time. Furthermore, it had garnered support from samurais in various domains who harbored deep anti-foreigner sentiments. In addition, many ordinary residents of Kyoto also rallied behind Choshu forces. That's why Choshu's armies met minimal resistance as they advanced all the way to the closed gates of the imperial palace. In order to enter into the palace, Choshu openly bombarded these gates. A parallel can be drawn here between Choshu forces that bombarded the emperor's palace gates in the name of Sono, or respecting the emperor, and the Trump supporters who vandalized the US Capitol while chanting that they were protecting democracy. Some things in history just tend to repeat themselves. The general in command of protecting these palace gates was Togawa Yoshinobu, who would later become the last shogun. He led his forces in a gallant defense, but was starting to show signs of weakness. At that urgent moment, the warrior who saved the day appeared. He was Satsuma Domain's military leader, Saigo Takamori. With his forces from Satsuma Domain, which was another one of Japan's most powerful domains at the time, he joined hands with Togawa Yoshinobu. Together, they successfully repelled the rebels. Remember that at this moment, these two men stood together against Choshu forces to save the emperor. In a few years, their roles will be interestingly shuffled. Bombarding the gates of the imperial palace was a grave offense, tantamount to open rebellion. As punishment, the shogunate and the court branded Choshu domain as an enemy of the state and launched a punitive expedition against it. The leader of this punitive expedition was none other than Saigo Takamori from Satsuma Domain. In August 1864, his forces marched towards Choshu in what would be known as the first Choshu expedition. However, even before his forces arrived, the Choshu Domain was already in a state of shambles. What happened? Remember that Choshu had taken a leading role in expelling foreigners and had earnestly fired up foreigner ships? Well, those foreigners came back for revenge. The United States, United Kingdom, France, and the Netherlands dispatched 17 battleships and 5,000 soldiers to punish Choshu. 
despite Choshu defenders' valiant resistance, they were crushed by the advanced firepower of Western nations. This defeat prompted many elites in Choshu to realize that forcefully repelling barbarians was doomed for failure. They quickly abandoned the insistence of repelling barbarians, made a 180-degree turn, and became firm learners of Western military tactics. After the departure of the foreigners, the government's army led by Saigo Takamoni reached the doors of Choshu. Initially, he had intended to destroy Choshu. After all, he lost many dear comrades during the previous battles in Kyoto. However, on his journey there, he received visits from several influential samurais and politicians. They convinced him that it was time for the Japanese people to unite against foreign threats instead of killing each other. So Saigo Takamori attempted to seek a bloodless victory. He communicated to Choshu that he would intercede with the emperor and the shogun for pardon if Choshu handed over the seven heads of the leaders involved in the previous rebellion and declared allegiance to the shogunate. The battle of Choshu agreed to these terms and bloodshed was avoided. After returning, Saigo Takamori recommended to the authorities that Choshu should be pardoned. He argued that in these challenging times, Japan needed unity. In hindsight, the shogunate should have listened to him. While it would have lost some of its former power and prestige, the shogunate itself might have survived. However, the shogunate made a profoundly unwise decision. It opted for a second expedition against the Choshu with the intent to utterly demolish it. By doing so, the shogunate signaled to warlords and samurais across Japan, including Satsuma Domain's Saigo Takamori, that instead of strengthening Japan as a whole, the shogunate prioritized the restoration of its former authority. This generated feelings of disillusionment and resentment towards the shogunate. During this critical juncture, envoys from Choshu approached Saigo Takamori. They articulated that a new political system was needed in order to strengthen Japan. They further argued that this could only happen after the overthrow of the shogunate. After some initial hesitation, Saigo Takamori concurred. In March 1866, a secret alliance was forged between Choshu and Satsuma domains, two of the most powerful domains in Japan at the time. With this alliance, a new secret faction emerged in Japanese politics, known as Tobaku, which means overthrow the shogunate. This faction consisted of Choshu, Satsuma, as well as an increasing number of other domains and court noblemen that were growing disenchanted with the shogunate's leadership. The shogunate, unaware that the political landscape was shifting against it, arrogantly embarked on the second Choshu expedition in the summer of 1866. Just like the first expedition, various domains sent their samurais. However, this time, the spirits of the participants were extremely low. Choshu had already paid a heavy price and offered official apologies. Many in the shogunate forces were skeptical about the shogunate's insistence on asserting its power rather than focusing on facing threats from abroad. When the shogunate's forces reached the door of Choshu domain, it boasted more than 100,000 men, which was 25 times larger 
than that of the Choshu defensive forces. However, despite of the overwhelming odds, the Shogunate armies failed to secure a quick victory. On the contrary, driven by their high fighting spirits and the Western weaponries secretly provided by the Satsuma domain, the Choshu defenders won several important battles. They even gained some territories as a result of the initial engagements. Just at that moment, a devastating piece of news stalked the shogunate camp. The shogun, Togawa Iemochi, died of a sudden illness in August 1866 at the young age of 20. Togawa Yoshinobu, a distant relative who previously led the defense of Kyoto against Choshu forces, became the new shogun. Unlike his recent predecessors, who were either too sickly or too young, the 30 years old Togawa Yoshinobu was a seasoned politician by the time he assumed the leadership of the shogunate. He recognized the absurdity in continuing the conflict with Choshu. Therefore, he leveraged the death of his predecessor as an excuse to cease hostilities and concluded a peace treaty with the Choshu domain. After the disastrous second Choshu expedition, the shogunate was significantly weakened. However, it still had a strong ally, the Emperor Kome. Let me say a few words about the complex relationship between Emperor Kome and the shogunate. Emperor Kome was a conservative figure who favored delegating the governments of the country to the shogunate. In this sense, he provided the shogunate with legitimacy. However, he was also a staunch advocate of repelling barbarians. So every time that the shogunate took a conciliatory approach to foreigners, its enemies could use that as evidence of the shogunate's disrespect towards the emperor. All things considered, the shogunate had generally benefited from the emperor Kome's presence. As long as emperor Kome was there, nobody dared to openly advocate the overthrow of the shogunate. But then, Emperor Kome suddenly passed away in January 1867. He was succeeded by his young teenager son, Emperor Meiji. That's the Meiji part of the Meiji Restoration. The death of the pro-shogunate Emperor Kome, the ascension of a more controllable new Emperor Meiji, and the shogunate's loss in prestige after the disastrous Second Choshu Expedition, all these provided an opportunity for the Tobaku forces that aimed to overthrow the shogunate. Satsuma and Choshu domains made plans to strike a fatal blow at the shogunate. Assisted by their allies within the court, on November 9, 1867, the anti-shogunate forces successfully orchestrated the issuance of an imperial edict that called for military overthrow of the shogunate. This edict was issued in the name of uh, Emperor Meiji, but it was signed by a court nobleman and probably without prior knowledge of the new emperor. In this critical juncture, Shogun Togawa Yoshinobu made a bold move. On the very day that the court issued the edict, he presented a memorial to the court. In it, he requested the dissolution of the shogunate and the return of sovereignty to the emperor. Basically, as I mentioned earlier, since the 12th century, the emperor has delegated the governance of Japan to the shogun. Now, the shogun is saying, Dear Your Majesty Emperor Meiji, 
the task of governing Japan exceeds our capabilities. Well done. Please do the job yourself. Togawa Yoshinobu was probably thinking the court lacked the necessary institutional mechanism to effectively run a national government. So it was likely that after taking back the sovereignty, the court would turn to him to manage the affairs of the country. He would then establish a new oligarchy controlled by him and his allies. This strategy of uh, willingly stepping back, surrendering titles in exchange for preserving or even augmenting real power is a time-honored tactic employed by shrewd politicians across history. For instance, the Roman Emperor Octavian voluntarily relinquished his uh, grandiose title of dictator in exchange for a series of uh, more humble titles. Yet beneath this facade, Octavian was gaining more and more dictatorial power. Back to Japan. Initially, events appeared to unfold according to the shogun's design. Upon receiving his request, the court canceled the military expedition against the shogunate, considering that, uh, in theory, the shogun had uh, ceased to exist. Furthermore, the court asked Togawa Yoshinobu to govern Japan until a viable solution could be reached. In order to find that solution, in late 1867, the court summoned Japan's most powerful lords and military leaders to convene in Kyoto. Together with high-ranking court noblemen, they were to deliberate on the government structure following Togao Yoshinobu's resignation. The year 1867 ended in an uneasy atmosphere. Togawa Yoshinobu was governing Japan for the time being. Japanese politics were in limbo. There were now two opposing factions. The old shogunate faction aimed to establish an oligarchy where those allied with Togao Yoshinobu would occupy prominent positions. In contrast, the Satsuma Choshu faction sought to first destroy all remnants of the former shogunate and then construct a new oligarchy in which their own allies would hold key positions. Although 15 years ago, the political crisis started as a foreign policy question on whether to repel foreigners, by 1868, things have evolved much beyond foreign policy considerations. In fact, with the death of Emperor Kome, no serious politician was advocating for repelling foreigners anymore. Furthermore, with Togawa Yoshinobu's request to dissolve the shogunate, there was a consensus that a new system of governance needed to be established. At this stage, the only real question was who would control power in the new government. Unfortunately for Togawa Yoshinobu, his enemies outmaneuvered him this time. On January 3, 1868, a gathering of domain lords and court noblemen convened within the imperial palace. As the meeting drew to a close, Satsuma and the Choshu forces suddenly encircled the palace and forcefully ejected those close to the former shogun. A few hours later, a document titled Decree for the Restoration of Imperial Rule was issued in the name of Emperor Meiji. This decree carried two provisions. The first was the dissolution of the shogunate, and the second was the establishment of a new government led directly by the emperor, just like how things were before the 12th century. With this decree, the Meiji restoration officially took place. The power of the emperor was restored. At least that's how it sounded in theory. It's worth highlighting that 
on this day of January 3rd, 1868, the ex-shogun Togawa Yoshinobu's fate remained uncertain. There was still a possibility that he might be appointed to a significant position within the new government. Just one day after the issuance of the previous edict, another crucial meeting took place at the imperial court to specifically discuss the future of Togawa Yoshinobu. The newly empowered Emperor Meiji presided the meeting from behind a curtain and listened to the debates. However, it was very unlikely that the 15 years old uh, Emperor exercised much control in the decision-making process. Even though most of the meeting participants were allies of Satsuma and Choshu domains, significant divisions still emerged. Some expressed a desire to have Togao Yoshinobu join the meeting. However, the hardline anti-shogunate forces vehemently opposed this. The meeting reached a deadlock and a recess was called. Once again, it was Saigo Takamori from the Satsuma domain who stepped forward to break the impasse. He had become a key member in the anti-shogunate Tobaku faction. During the recess, he casually yet clearly remarked, Ah, my dagger can solve any problem. After the meeting resumed, perhaps afraid that Saigo Takamori would follow through his words, no one dared to speak for the former shogun anymore. It was unanimously decided that in addition to relinquishing his titles, Togawa Yoshinobu must surrender all his lands and disband all his armies. Furthermore, all important positions in the new government would go to Satsuma, Choshu, and their allies. This was the event that ultimately sealed the fate of Togawa Yoshinobu and his followers. It was a carefully orchestrated political coup. Decisions did not emerge from open and transparent deliberations, nor did they truly involve Emperor Meiji. Instead, they were the product of clandestine maneuvering behind closed doors by a small group of anti-shogunate men, accompanied by thinly veiled threats of violence. Naturally, Togao Yoshinobu did not remain passive. Upon learning the outcome of the coup, he and his allies hastily departed from Kyoto and mustered their force in Osaka Castle. A confrontation between the new government troops led by Satsuma and Choshu domains and the old shogunate's troops led by Togao Yoshinobu was on the verge of commencing. This marked the beginning of the Boshin War, also known as the Japanese Revolution War. Now, among uh, wars that gave birth to modern nations, like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, or the Chinese Communist Revolution, the Boshin War stands out for its uh, relatively low level of bloodshed. Here's a summary of what happened. After returning to Osaka and uh, assembling his forces, Togawa Yoshinobu advanced towards Kyoto. His uh, stated mission was to safeguard the emperor from hostile forces from Choshu and Satsuma. This situation was reminiscent of the earlier scene four years ago when Choshu forces were marching towards Kyoto Palace while Satsuma force and Togawa Yoshinobu played the role of a protector of the emperor. Now, the roles were reversed. Tokugawa Yoshinobu held the numerical superiority with his forces numbering 15,000 compared to the new government's 5,000. However, the former shogun's army consisted of soldiers from a dozen different domains, each with its own motivations. 
exploiting this internal disunity, the new government's forces employed a clever strategy. In the midst of the battles, they began to wave flags of the imperial family. Perceiving that they were now fighting against the emperor, many samurais in the old shogunate's camp lost their nerves. Togao Yoshinobu was forced to retreat back to Osaka Castle. Back in Osaka, the former shogun conveyed to his subordinates his intention to persist in the conflict. He still commanded a large army, possessed more territory, and had superior administrative expertise compared to the new government. Had he chosen to continue the fight, it's difficult to predict the ultimate victor. What was certain was that a prolonged war would kill many people and torn Japan apart. However, the former shogun then made an unexpected decision that has perplexed historians ever since. Despite of his promise to his subordinates, one day after, he fled to Osaka Castle and returned to Edo. There, he declared himself a criminal and self-exiled into a Buddhist temple. After their leader's uh, unexpected abandonment, the forces loyal to the old shogunate lost all willingness to fight. Satsuma and Choshu forces swiftly gained control over the western part of Japan, including Osaka. They then marched to the former shogunate's headquarters of Edo. Over there, Saigo Takamori, the leader of this expedition, once again demonstrated his genius. He skillfully negotiated the peaceful surrender of the city, saving thousands of lives and historical sites. Edo would of course later be renamed Tokyo. While some pockets of armed resistance persisted, especially in the Hokkaido region, uh, by the middle of 1868, barely six months after the start of the war, Japan was largely pacified. Following the old shogunate's defeat, the Meiji Restoration was off the ground. While the exact structure of the new government would undergo various changes over the subsequent decades, it can be characterized by two key elements. First, it featured an emperor who served as the symbolic head of the state. Second, the real power resided with influential Choshu and Satsuma samurais as well as their allies. In this sense, the old onigaki led by the Togawa clan was replaced by a new onigaki led by the Satsuma Choshu alliance. However, despite of the appearance of similarity, a significant change had indeed occurred. This new onigaki was not burdened by centuries of uh, entrenched traditions, granting it with the ability to enact groundbreaking reforms. In the ensuing decade, it would abandon anti-foreigner policies, dismantle the feudal system, and uh, ultimately abolish the samurai class altogether. It's hard to envision the old shogunate achieving such profound reforms as rapidly as the new government did. Saigo Takamori, the legendary samurai from Satsuma Domain, who played such a pivotal role in events leading to the Meiji Restoration, was initially appointed to high-level positions within the new government. He even served as the acting prime minister for some time. However, several years later, in a dramatic turn of events, he found himself chased by the forces of the new government that he helped to create. Eventually, he was trapped near a castle inside his native Satsuma domain. Faced 
with the inevitability of defeat, he committed the ritual suicide of seppuku. If you want to hear the tales of the intriguing end of this tragic hero, stay tuned for upcoming episode. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in the video version, it's available on YouTube. The visual aids and the subtitles there may help you to better understand the topic. Oh, and uh, you also get to see my very animated facial expressions. You can find the link in the description. See you next time.